At Apex, we care deeply about discipleship. We desire to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus. Being a disciple means that you are a follower of Jesus and his ways. It's not about programs, it's about relationships. Author Dallas Willard put it this way, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. We follow Jesus in his way of making disciples. So what did Jesus do? He set the table for others, he broke bread with them, and he invited them to follow after him. When Jesus came, his very first miracle set the tone for what the kingdom of God is all about. When attending a wedding with his disciples and his mother, Jesus turned water into wine so that the feast could continue. Jesus' shared table is central to his life and ministry on earth. As we read in Acts 2, Jesus' hospitality continued after he ascended to heaven. The early church broke bread together in their homes and ate with glad and sincere hearts. And because of that, the Lord added to their numbers daily. At Apex, we continue this practice today through our house churches and households as we share meals, love one another, and invite others into following Jesus too. We are now more than ever committed to discipleship through house churches and households. Without a doubt, your commitment to meeting regularly has created safe spaces for many people to maintain relationships as they relate with God and wrestle with the pains of this world. We wanna say thank you to our house churches and our households for continuing to learn how to love and serve one another and their communities. We feel God is saying to us that we are to press into relationships with Him and others in the midst of hard times because it's in challenging seasons that often the most growth occurs. We try to ignore or numb pain, but it's in the hard season that God often meets us, cares for us, renews us, and grows us. He did this with His own people Israel. God said through His prophet Hosea that when His people are in hard seasons, He meets them just like a groom meets his bride. Another prophet, Jeremiah, told God's people that they were to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. They were to seek the peace and prosperity of the city and pray for it, because if the city prospers, you will prosper too. Just as God meets us in our seasons of challenge, we get to meet others in their hard places. The good news offers everyone a seat around the table, and we get to extend that invitation to others so that they can come to the Good Shepherd and find rest. The Apostle Paul says that following Jesus is like walking on a journey or running a race. The beauty of discipleship is that it's not a system or program, it's about walking in relationship with God and others. Looking at Jesus' life, we have identified four valuable pathways where you can start or continue your discipleship journey. The friendship pathway, the development pathway, the community pathway, and the public pathway. In the friendship pathway, we encourage you to explore intimacy with God by knowing God's story and how you are part of it as His image bearer. Spiritual friendships are a key way that we grow an authentic, meaningful relationship. In the development pathway, we explore our God-given potential by imitating and learning from others as we follow Jesus. Huddles are where we train you in your gifts and how to be intentional in your areas of influence. In the community pathway, participate in or start your own household or house church. Kingdom community embraces messiness over perfection, living on mission together as we share the love and light of Jesus. Our learning experiences happen every fall and spring where we process together in community how to live out Jesus' good news. In the public pathway, we come together at our weekend gatherings to hear God's word, to worship, pray and respond, and to serve the community. For more information and opportunities about each of our discipleship pathways, go to apex.church forward slash discipleship. Apex, let's not lose sight and get discouraged. There's a lot of hopelessness in the world, but we are not without hope as God's people. Let's remember what brings us together. It's the good news that Jesus and his kingdom have come. Discipleship is as simple as inviting others into what you're already doing and challenging them to follow Jesus as you follow him too.
day. That was awesome. Wow, I was kind of lost there for a minute. It was really good, wasn't it? I was sitting back thinking, this is really good. I think I'll sit here for a bit longer. Jason. Hi, I got a little bit lost in it too. since the video. I did, yes. Um, it's, good in, it's good to know he's got two shirts, isn't it? Don't you think it's good? It's good to know he's got two shirts. So, Jason, um, when we're developing leaders at Apex, obviously it's all about discipleship and these pathways that you're talking about. Just give us a little bit more on that, will you? Yeah, so the idea, again, like we shared in the video of Pathways, is that discipleship isn't a program. It's about relationships. And Jesus, in his life, had various spheres of relationships that he was offer, operating in, most closely with the Father and, say, James, uh, Peter, and John, and then the 12. At the more social level, he was operating with the 72, and then the public and the crowds. One of the things that... Uh, Mike has said very often is that multiplication happens at the rate of leadership development. So what that means is that at the more that we're concerned about raising up and multiplying leaders, uh, the more that we will see uh, God's body and his kingdom grow. And so a key tool that we use in leadership development here at Apex is through what is called huddles. Huddles are smaller groups of 6 to 10 to 12 people who gather together for uh, um, a distinct period of time in order to wrestle through two basic questions. What is it that God is saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? Uh, they can be, they're kind of like, a, it's a, like a vehicle. You can fill it with kind of whatever you want. Um, so huddles that we have coming up are going to be exploring the basic tools of discipleship that we use here at Apex called Life Shapes. Uh, we also have some that are coming up that are going to explore New Testament theology and Old Testament theology. Uh, if you want to find out more about our huddles and those sort of things, uh, as you heard there, we actually have a brand new website that launched today. Yay! If you go to apex.church. Uh, if you go to apexcommunity.org, it will give you a little landing page that redirects you to apex.church, and by God's grace, those things will just coexist here shortly. Um, technology is not as fast as we want it to be, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, but if you go to apex.church, um, apex uh, there's a button that says connect at the top. There's three buttons at the top, uh, resources, connect, and about, if you just hit that connect button, Discipleship Pathways is right there at the top. And you can see the offerings of these four different pathways and what's available to you. And huddles uh, are going to be there at the development pathway. Cool. So uh, we're seeing a little bit of a transition in language from house church to household. We're keeping the word house church around, but we're adding this word household. Just give us an idea as to what that's all about. Yeah, so in the early church, uh, what they would do, they would meet in oikos and temple. Oikos simply means a household. Um, and so that's where that language household comes from. We recognize that sometimes we carry some baggage, some traditional baggage that we have from our past that doesn't necessarily line up with the New Testament model of what the church is supposed to be. One of the things that I've noticed over the years, and as I've talked about this with Mike, is often what can happen with our house churches when they gather is that we, re, we re, try to re replicate everything that we do on a Sunday morning, say on a, on a Tuesday evening or Wednesday evening. And that puts a lot of weight and pressure on our leaders. What we're looking for is something that's simple, repeatable, and transferable. Something that after a very short period of time, the people who are participating in it can be raised up to become leaders and start their own communities as well. And if people are having to do so much studying every week and take care of all the pastoral issues and all that sort of thing that, that takes place as we gather as a big church, uh, then that's just a lot of weight for them to carry. Mm -hmm. That's good. Round of applause for Jason. Good job, brother. So I had, um, I had a, special, um, a special little time this week. Uh, I tried to get with different members of the congregation uh, from time to time, maybe have a coffee, a cup of tea. They like to have the English experience. And um, occasionally, I'll get together with someone for an ice cream because they like ice cream better than coffee or tea. And um, uh, just this last week, I was very, very blessed to spend a time with Adrian, sitting right here at the front with his daddy. 
And uh, we, had a, we had an ice cream together. He's one of the most faithful members of Apex. <laughs> Good old Adrian. And, um, and he showed me the video of when he went back to the family home, kind of the wider extended family home, and uh, something very special happened. And I want you to see that right now. Yes, Adrian got baptized. How about that? Whoa! <laughs> well done, Adrian. Of course, he's been part of the family for a long time, knowing the Lord Jesus. But it's great that he made that public declaration. And we pray God's blessing on him today. So we're going to continue in our subject today of looking at the vision of growing here at Apex. Apex, of course, is committed to gathering here in-house and online, and welcome to everyone who's doing that. We're, of course, committed to growing in our discipleship as we become disciples who can make disciples. And, of course, we're committed to going as the Lord calls us individually, as families, and collectively as a body. This week, we're going to be looking at the growing vision as we've heard it articulated for us so beautifully by Jason and Rosalind, and illustrated so ably to us by Adrian. And we're going to look at this subject of household, which is the very epicenter of the New Testament model of discipleship. So I'm going to read to you today from Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. And Paul is coming to the end of his third missionary journey. There are three missionary journeys that are mentioned in the New Testament, principally in the Acts of the Apostles. The first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas plant churches in Galatia. The second missionary journey, Paul plants churches across the Mediterranean basin, especially into Europe and into Greece. And in the third missionary journey, his principal task is to plant the church in Ephesus and then go and visit the other churches in Europe and then come back via a meeting with the leaders of Ephesus. And this is what Paul says there. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I need a little drink, hang on. I think I sometimes get a little bit dry up here when I feel a bit emotional. And I was a bit emotional with Adrian and maybe Jason called me to be emotional, I don't know, I mean. So here's Paul, he's returning on his third missionary journey. He calls in at a city called Miletus, which is at the mouth of the river on which the city of Ephesus is built. The city of Ephesus is about 11 miles back from the coast on the great estuary of this river. And there at the mouth of the river is this small city called Miletus. And there on the beach, Paul calls the elders of 
of the church in that city. The elders are principally people who oversee their households. They're people who have welcomed people into their homes. They're people who, within the structure of the family unit, have added to that family other members as they've welcomed everyone from slave through to the most noble of birth, people who have been ushered into the kingdom. And we know that there's been a significant work in Ephesus, a work so significant that it impacts the very economy of the city. The economy of the city is, of course, built around trade from uh, this great port, but also it's built around religion and especially religious tourism. We can't imagine a world where such a long time ago religious tourism was so evident. And yet, here in Ephesus was the largest building in the world. No building would rival it for scale and beauty. This is the building that King Croesus, the great wealthy king of Lydia, gave his money to build because it was here that the meteorite landed and this was an indication to the people of the time that they believed that God had come to visit them. And when they looked at the meteorite, somehow they saw the face of the goddess Diana. And so they built this great temple, the largest building in the world, the most beautiful building in the world, one of the seven wonders of the world, and it became the place of pilgrimage. Of course, around that place of pilgrimage, all kinds of artifacts were, were kind of grown up. And one of those were the little silver statuettes of Diana herself. And the silversmiths were so impacted by the number of people becoming Christians that they couldn't sell their wares. And so they stirred up a revolt in the city, persecution against Paul, and he was driven from the city. But by that stage, not only had the church in Ephesus been established, the church that would be the most important church for the next 400 years, but also many were sent out, people like Epaphras, who's mentioned at the beginning of the letter to the Colossians. People like Epaphras were sent out as teams of church planters. And probably all of the churches that we see in Revelation, the seven churches in Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, these churches were all planted probably during the time that Paul is there. He's only there for three years, so you can imagine the testimony in Acts is not in any way overblown when it says the whole region came under the sound of the gospel. This was an amazing time of outpouring, of revival, of blessing. And Paul says, the way that I did this work, under God's hand with great humility, supporting myself and my team through tent making, the way that I did this was in public and from house to house. In public... We know that Paul no longer had access to the synagogue, which would have been a large building in the city of Ephesus. There was a large Jewish community in the city. We know that for certain. But he was no longer able to operate there because of the dispute that, that arose within the congregation about his teaching of Jesus the Messiah. And so he left the synagogue and went to teach in an open-air arena, a large lecture arena, a large lecture theater that was owned and run by a professor called the Tyrant. Imagine what it was like going to his classes in Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, was a well-known place of learning and education, its library was second only to the great library of Alexandria. And so people would come there from all over the world to be trained. And no doubt that professor Tyrannus was one of the 
one of the great draws of education there in the city. During the siesta hours, from 12 to 4 in the afternoon, when it's very hot, Paul would rent the facility and teach the disciples. And he taught them, it says, through discussion, through dialogue. He had daily discussions in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul says, I did it in public and from house to house. Now, what's interesting about that is that Paul understood that the DNA of building the church was always something that was going to be revealed as something in public and something from house to house. He knew this, of course, because when he was a persecutor of the church, he used that very mechanism of public and house to house as the way in which he persecuted the early church. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 8, you'll see there Paul in his pre-Christian days known as Saul. Saul, we're told at the beginning of chapter 8, is giving approval to the death of the first martyr of the church, Stephen, who's given his brave testimony before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, baying for his breath, chase him out of the building, take him to the outskirts of the city, and stone him to death. Paul, one of the younger attendants to the Sanhedrin, is holding the coats of the oldest down. The person that throws the first stone is the oldest among them. He holds the coats of those who murder the first martyr. It says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So Saul knew how to persecute the church. The devil knows how to persecute the church, whether the persecution be publicly sanctioned or whether the persecution be privately instigated, whether the persecution be something that we can identify as a conscious, rational decision or whether the persecution comes by way of a health crisis. The way that you persecute the church is to close down the public meetings and prevent the households from functioning. You're all bright enough to know what I'm talking about here. So Saul, of course, along with his running buddies, closed down the public meetings, the public meetings at the time, and we'll look at this in a moment, of course, were held in Solomon's portico, which was on one side of Temple Mount. It was on the side where the Kidron Valley went down and then up onto the Mount of Olives. On that side of the temple, just near the royal stoa, as part of the temple complex, people could gather under the shade of that portico, many, many thousands in fact, and they could listen to the teaching and the preaching of the apostles. They came with their gifts and laid them at the apostles' feet for the distribution of needs to those who were in difficulty and for the support of the mission of that first infant church there in that public gathering of the temple. And then, of course, they met in their homes. Paul found it quite easy to close down the temple because, of course, it's public. And if it's public, then, of course, you offer a very clear target to anyone who wants to see it. As far as the homes are concerned, you have to identify the homes of the Christians. And then if you drag them off, 
of course, you've closed down the movement. That's what Saul did. He knew in his pre-Christian days how to destroy the church. And he knew in his Christian days how to build it. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 2, we'll be looking at this in greater detail next week. I just want to make a very brief reference to something that I believe is tremendously important as we think about what it is that God wants to say to us. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 describes the daily continuum, the, the daily round of those early believers. 3,000 came to faith on the day of Pentecost, and those 3,000 ushered into the kingdom would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, would devote themselves to the wider life of the fellowship. They would devote themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And each of those things would take place in different locations. Listen to what it says in verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I'm not going to embarrass anybody by saying, who wants to build the church? Because everybody, of course, will feel the peer pressure of putting your hand up. But if you want to build the church, there are particular ways in which you can do it. And the principal way, the principal way is to have your home as a place of welcome and hospitality. Sally and I have lived a life of welcome and hospitality since we got married. We once took an audit during our time when we were leading a global ministry called 3DM, which we then decentralized into lots of churches around the world and stood back for a little while to take a rest before we came to join you here. And during those years, we would have many people come for training events in the location that we lived at in Paulie's Island, South Carolina. And we took an audit one year of how many people stayed with us overnight and how many people had dinner with us. We stopped counting how many people had dinner at 1,000, and we stopped counting how many people stayed overnight at 100. It was somewhere well in advance of 1,000 people and somewhere in advance of 100 people who stayed overnight. And I think we were both surprised because it didn't feel like that, and it definitely didn't feel irksome or troublesome that that was the case. You see, we've become so familiar with that lifestyle that it doesn't seem as though it's work anymore. But here's the interesting thing. We've lived now in America both as visitors and as naturalized citizens for 17 years. And I haven't run out of fingers as to how many homes we've been invited to for dinner. Americans are the most welcoming, least hospitable people I've ever met. They're the most welcoming, least hospitable people I've ever met. I mean, you can go to Scandinavia and you wonder whether they, I mean, it's somewhere on the scale between dislike and hate you. But you go to their home all the time for food. In America, you feel like you're a long lost son when you meet people in Starbucks, but you never get invited into their home. We've thought about this, we've wondered about this. We think it may well be something to do with this kind of presentational culture that says, if you have someone in your home for food, the place has got to look like um, something out of 
a Magnolia magazine. That's for people who know what Magnolia is about. For everyone else, you know, like a really cool place. You could possibly invite people into your home with shoes on the floor and washing waiting to be cleaned and, and pots in the sink. But you see, the way that the DNA of the church was established was that on the first day of the church's birth, God, in his wisdom, gave the continuum in which the church is supposed to function. And it's supposed to function in public and from house to house. And if you want to know why it is that the church in America struggles to reach the threshold of breakthrough, still less revival, then one of the reasons is that we simply don't live in that continuum. It wouldn't matter how many times I preached on this. It would be very, very difficult to imagine a day when so many Americans would suddenly become hospitable. So, here's the challenge. Do you want to build the church? Do you want to see the kingdom of God expand? Do you want to see a New Testament model of church reemerge? Would you like to see society changed in the way that society was changed in Jerusalem and Ephesus, where even the economic framework that we operate with is impacted by the gospel? Well, then you have to press the default button and go back to the original setting. The original factory setting. The original outflow from heaven. The original DNA of the church is unmistakably defined by public gatherings that, of course, can be closed down by persecution very easily and from house to house. Now, of course, we know that the church often suffered persecution for the first 250 years until Emperor Constantine basically said that the Christian church had won in the foot race of all religions. He said, the Christians have won. He said that because probably by then 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christians. And the reason they became Christians was that in the Christian households, the testimony to Jesus was so living and so vital and so vibrant that people all around wanted to be Christians. And the place that they discovered Christianity was not in the preaching in the public places because that was virtually impossible during persecution. The place that they discovered Christianity was around the table of Christian homes. Now you may say, well, I'm a student and um, I can't possibly be hospitable. Well, that's because you misunderstand hospitality. You can, you can go and buy a coffee machine and some cheap coffee that doesn't taste very good. And you can invite people to your room and give them a coffee. You can, in your apartment, invite people round for a cup of tea and a biscuit, as you would if you were an English person. You can invite people round for a sandwich, for a salad, for anything. And what happens is simply this. Grace begins to flow because when you sit at table and begin to eat, you have to put your weapons down. And with your weapons, you have to put your shield down. And with your shield down and your weapons away, your heart becomes open. Your heart, your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, your needs tenderly hosted by people who love you will be impacted just by their very presence. We, um, 
We used to do lots and lots of surveys when we ran this, this big ministry. And there were thousands and thousands of people who would come to our training events and and we'd do them all over the world. And, and then when people came to our home, we would say, what was it that you liked the most? And they'd say, Sally's lasagna, Charlie the dog, and my mother-in-law. She would often visit from England. And she would just walk around like the Queen of England, just saying, hello, how are you? Are you doing all right? They're very nice, very lovely, yeah. Would you like a cup of tea? Yeah, okay. And, and then she would just direct somebody to go and make them a cup of tea. And people just thought that she was the, me- she, they just thought she was the best thing since sliced bread. And the reason that she was so well-received was that she simply understood the DNA of hospitality. She was like a butterfly, just alighting on every flower, bringing a little blessing to each one. That's all she needed to do. People have written to me years on. She's long gone to be with the Lord now. They've written to me years on saying, I still consider that evening in your home to be one of the great moments Now, did we have a big prayer meeting? Not a very big one. Was there any sermon? I can't remember. Was there something that touched people's hearts forever? Absolutely. And you see, if you're going to have a meeting in that kind of context where you're eating and you're sharing and you're simply hosting the people so that they feel comfortable and able to share, then you begin to discover what it is that Paul was talking about when he described worship in the New Testament. We see what it means when Paul in 1 Corinthians says, now, when you come together, make sure that you don't overeat or overdrink. And you're thinking, wow, it's a funny kind of church service. But that's because, you see, our our mind, our picture is this. Whereas their picture was sitting around a table. So when you come, make sure you don't overeat. If you need, if you're coming really, really hungry, then make sure you have a snack on the way, says Paul. And don't get drunk with wine, but but be filled with the Spirit. So clearly, the, the, the theme of Jesus turning water into wine was not lost on the early church. So the people would gather and they'd, they'd get around the table. People would be sharing food, not... not pressing ahead and trying to get as much food as they could or much drink as they could. They, they wanted to share with one another to make sure that, that everyone was hosted and taken care of. And, and then it was quite clear that the most important person that was there was the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit would be made manifest in their conversation. And there would be some with gifts of wisdom and some with gifts of knowledge And some with gifts of teaching. Some with gifts of prophecy. Some would have gifts of miracles. Some would have a gift of tongues or interpretation. And the host would, of course, administer, would facilitate, would encourage. Because all of the gifts were given for the common good. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And when you imagine it like that, you think, oh, I see, that's why, that's why it's possible to do it. You see, if we said that this meeting was like the meeting that Paul described in 1 Corinthians, we'd be here until Thursday. Because if everyone brings a gift and everyone gets to share, it's just about impossible. Public meetings are all about apostolic teaching, the gathering of resources, 
the inspiration of the church to go on mission, the healing and miraculous ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those are the kinds of things, and we'll look at this in more detail next week. Those are the kinds of things that you can expect in the public gathering. But in the house-to-house gathering, it's everyone with, with their gifts coming to share. Paul, when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, made it quite clear that there was a way in which he expected things to be done. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 11 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now we know from the scholarship of the church that this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, which is really the only letter without personal greetings at the end, was sent as a round-robin letter to many, many churches. Tertullian, a second-century church leader, quotes from this letter, and he calls it the letter to the Laodiceans. And it's perhaps that letter that is being referred to by Paul in Colossians chapter 4, Around about verse 17, I believe, when he says, now make sure you read the letter to the Laodiceans. It's not the letter in the book of Revelation. It's not been written yet. It's the letter to the Ephesians. It's the letter that's been sent to all of the churches that were planted during Paul's time in Ephesus. He writes a letter and then says to his secretary, now when you send this out, just mail merge it and send it to everybody, okay? Use MailChimp or something. And so they send it out to all the churches and they just address it to a different church each time. But he wanted to write specifically to the church in Colossae because there were some things going on in the church of Colossae that concerned him. Maybe the people who had become Christians had come out of a sect of Judaism which had some strange folk religion components to it that honored angels. And he wanted to kind of nip it in the bud before it grew any further. And and it's one of the things that you see being identified here in the text of Colossians. But when he gets to describing the meetings, he says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God and whatever you do whether in word or deed do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him did you notice that when he wrote to the Ephesians and when he wrote to the Colossians he basically said look allow the work of God to come from you in particular ways words of of encouragement in song, in word, from psalms, from hymns and spiritual songs. Admonish one another, give thanks to God. There's the expectation that as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as we honor one another and recognize that all are equal in the presence of the Lord Jesus, that something begins to happen In Ephesians, he says, allow the Spirit to work. In Colossians, he says, allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. And then he says to the Colossians, make sure you read the other letter. Why? Because like the individual we spoke about last week, Philip, as an example to all of us, Paul wanted to make sure that the early communities were built on the two principal foundation blocks of the Word and the Spirit. So how do you lead your household meetings? How do you you deal with people as they come into your home and you invite them for food and you invite them for drink and you invite them for celebration and you invite them regularly 
to share with you. What do you do? You rely on the word. Open it regularly. Share it liberally. Without that kind of heavy Bible bashing approach to things. And rely on the spirit. Who will open people's hearts and cause them to see and to say things that at first they won't recognize as gifts of the Spirit. When we meet for prayer in the mornings and in the evenings here in-house and online, 8.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the evening, one of the things that I do kind of secretly and sneakily is to encourage people's giftings. I'll simply say, okay, well, just in this quiet moment, if there's anything that you feel in the scripture that you want to read, then, then share it. And maybe if you've had a dream, share that. And if you feel any sense that God is saying anything to you, you've seen a picture of something, you've seen a vision of something, you just sense a kind of a, an inner impulse to share, then share that. And at first, there's just yawning silence. And then little by little, the first timid soul says, Ah, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, marvelous. And then somebody else shares a scripture that they read that morning. And then someone says, well, in prayer, I, I got this strange picture of blah, blah, blah. And, and then another person says, well, I had a dream. And, and then one of the people shares a dream for 15 minutes. You think, okay. Maybe not 15 minutes next time. But you see what's happening. It's the manifestation of the Spirit. One has a gift of encouragement. One has the gift of knowledge. Another has a gift of wisdom. On Thursday night, we were praying. And as we prayed, there were a whole variety of things that came up in the prayer. And we will share those at the end of the service. But right here, let me just read them to you. There was prayer for each of us to sense God calling us into partnership in serving. As we prayed together on Thursday night, there was this sense that God was identifying people who felt distant from him. And there was a word that said he wanted to reanimate his relationship with them. Reanimate their relationship with him. I wonder who that is in the congregation. Someone who has known a vital and vibrant relationship with the Lord in past years and you know that it's become dim and somewhat dead in recent times. God wants to reanimate his relationship with you and to give you a fresh testimony of blessing. There are those who... God wants to heal inwardly, not physically, but inwardly, because they carry a yoke of fear that causes them to be tired and weary. They've carried a yoke of fear. Maybe they've become so familiar with it that they don't even think about it anymore. They're constantly anxious, and it's caused them to be weary and tired. Maybe at night, they find it difficult to sleep well. Those who come here as new members, as new visitors, as new guests, there was a sense in which we wanted to pray that you knew love and healing. That God would release his spirit and make us ready to move on from Infant food to solid food for mature Christians. Some of the things I shared this morning are really the solid food for mature Christians. Those of you who sit there thinking, oh, it's all very well, but I don't think that's for me. That's maybe because you're choosing to live the life of an infant rather than an adult Christian. 
And then finally, a specific word for someone who has difficulty in their shin, perhaps on their right leg. Now, the people who prayed for those things didn't share them as words of knowledge or words of wisdom or words of healing, words of revelation, but that's exactly what they are. And of course, in a public gathering, those kinds of things are reacted to and responded to differently than they would be in a household gathering. It's much, much easier in a household gathering if somebody says, I need some healing, to pray for them because there's only four or five people there. It doesn't feel like you're exposing yourself when you come to the front and the prayer team and the ministry team are here to... It's just easy to do. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Christian household, which is the word used in the New Testament, the word household is used. And I think it's partly used so that we don't get this idea that what we do in our homes somehow is a micro version of what happens on a Sunday, because it isn't. It's not supposed to be Sunday church made small. It's supposed to be household, Christian household, experienced and embraced. What God, I believe, wants to do among us is to, is to bring life and renewal and revival to each of us as we meet him in the very places that he first designed to meet with us in public and from house to house. God wants to meet in your home. He wants to meet new Christians, pre-Christians, old Christians. He wants you to host him and them. He wants you to host the Spirit and invite his word. He wants you to sit at table and expect the conversation to include the gifts of the Spirit animating the hearts of the people who are gathered there, even if it's just for coffee and cookies. And as you learn to host the presence of God, and as you learn to host the people of God, and as you learn to build the household of God, I believe that we will be much closer to the revival that all of us desire.